I'm Jeff Cohen. Mark Rosen is a consultant for Jewish nonprofit organizations. He spent two decades at Brandeis University, where he was a researcher and professor at that school's Jewish professional leadership program. His road to Torah Judaism wound through what he calls the worst Hebrew school in Chicago, Eastern mysticism, academia, and Israel, where Rosen says he had a mystical experience at the Kotel. And he joins me now. Mark, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you so much. This is going to be fun. I appreciate you being here. So give me a sense of your parents, like where they were born and raised, where your story begins. So my parents are both from shtetls in Poland. My mother left Poland as a teenager for Havana, Cuba, lived in Cuba for five years, and then came to this country in 1941. My father uh, is a Holocaust survivor. He survived four camps and came to this country in 1948. Wow. And were they living an Orthodox life when they were in Poland or they were secular? I think that my mother definitely grew up in an Orthodox home. My grandfather was a Ger Chassid, but my father was more of the enlightened variety. And so... I think he was from because that's what you did, but I think his sentiments were much more about Palestine and uh, sports. Got uh, it. And how did their lives come together then? They were introduced in, uh, in about 1950 in Chicago. I mean, they had, their separate paths had both brought them to Chicago. My father, after the war, was in a DP camp for two years, Lonsberg, and then... Um, he had a maternal aunt who had emigrated to the United States decades earlier, and she brought him and his brother to Chicago. And then my mother came to Chicago in 41 because of family also. Okay, so they meet in Chicago, and at this point, are they both considered secular Jews? You know, it's hard for me to know what they were then. I, I Based on what my childhood was like, you know, they were nominally conservative. When I say nominally conservative, it means they belong to a conservative synagogue. They definitely observed Pesach and the High Holidays and Hanukkah, not so much Shabbat, not Kashrut. So we grew up, you know, going to a conservative synagogue, but not doing much except for holidays. And you grew up in Chicago where they met or they moved around? I grew up in Chicago. Okay. So when you say they observe things like Pesach, that can mean different things to different people, especially if you're raised conservative. So in my family, that just meant having some matzah and kind of drifting off to bed with kind of a modified Seder. Uh, what did it mean in your household? Well, I know that we didn't allow chumetz in the house. We would always go to Seder at my uncle's house. So I would say Pesach was observed pretty carefully as I recall. That's an interesting one. If you're telling me that your family wasn't eating kosher, but at the same time during that week of Passover, there's no bread in the house. That's an interesting combination to be so strict on one, but not eating kosher. Yeah. But of course, when you're a kid, you don't know any better. <laughs> you know, I mean, you just this is just the way it was, you know, and I, it was many years later that I sort of scratched my head and said, huh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So I mentioned in the intro this uh, Hebrew school and the experience that you had there. So that means your parents, even though you were in public school, you still had a Hebrew school experience? Right. So I walked maybe a mile or so to a, a synagogue that was in a neighborhood that had once been very heavily Jewish, but almost all the Jews had moved away. So when I was in Hebrew school, there were maybe five kids left. 
And I played hooky for a while. I didn't like it. So I used to leave the house and go to the public library and then come back when I would have come back had I gone to Hebrew school that, <laughs> that afternoon. And eventually I got caught after about, I don't know, six weeks, you know, and I got punished and I wasn't allowed to watch Car 54, Where Are You? <laughs> and you had to go back to class. And I had to go back. So uh, when it came time for my bar mitzvah, you know, I studied with the head of the Hebrew school, who was a rabbi. And about 10 days before the date of my bar mitzvah, I went to his apartment for my lesson. And I heard his wife kind of whisper, did you tell him yet? And so I heard him say, not yet. You know, this was like in the next room, but I could overhear it. So he sits me down. He says, Mark, he says, I don't know how to tell you this, but I signed the wrong half Torah. Uh-oh. <laughs> and so I started crying because that's what, that's what you do when you're 12 years old. So at least that's what I did. So, so then I said, well, what are we going to do? He said, well, I can, you can do the half Torah that you've been rehearsing and I'll just tell everybody it was my mistake or you can learn the new one. I said, well, it's not right to do the wrong half Torah. So of course I have to learn the new one. So I learned the new one in 10 days and that's what I did. And it was really, it was a formative experience because at a relatively young age, I came to understand that I could recover from a setback. And there have been, you know, unexpected setbacks in my life. And I always go back to that experience and sort of like, yeah, you know, you pulled it off. Nobody really even knew that I had just learned it. Not that I was so good at chanting a half Torah, but I pulled it off. It happened to be a very short one. I think it was Kadoshim. So it was easy. You know, I, I was able to learn it. I was able to learn it pretty quickly. You're not going to believe this, but the exact same thing happened to me. Really? Just in a different context. Yeah. When I became observant, uh, we had kids at this point, so it's at a different life stage. But I put on my bucket list that I wanted to read a Haftorah. And I went to our rabbi and I said, but I want one, you know, three months out. So I have like ample time to learn how to do this. I've never done it before. So he gives me uh, the Haftorah for Noah, which is going to be that week's Parsha. And four days before... He calls me, he says, you're not going to believe this, but it's Rosh Chodesh, and I've assigned you the wrong one. And I'm in the exact same situ situation that you were in. I can either read it, but it doesn't count, or I can try to cram and learn this other one in three days. And I did exactly what you did. I said, I'm, I'm not giving up, and I did the best I could and muscled through it. Good for you. All right, so let's keep going with your story. So you have kind of a traditional conservative bar mitzvah? Correct. At that point? Yes. Okay. And and what happens to your Jewish life from that moment on? So, so a lot of my friends, like that was kind of the end of the road. And then you're back as a public school kid, not doing much from a Jewish perspective. But what are you doing at that point post bar mitzvah? Well, I went to an all-male high school in Chicago. At the time, Lane Technical High School was the best high school in the city. And it was only men. And if I wanted any sort of a social life, I needed to find it elsewhere. And so USY was perfect. So I got involved with USY, not for Jewish reasons, but for social reasons. So just tell our listeners what that stands for, those who aren't oh, familiar with it. United Synagogue Youth, the conservative movement's youth group. You know, I went on Shabbatones, I went on retreats. I enjoyed it. And then 
it was time for college. And I went from some involvement to zero involvement. And that was really the case from my freshman year until I was in my mid-30s. I had almost no involvement with Judaism whatsoever, except, you know, if I were to come home during a holiday, I would get some exposure to something Jewish. But I, I lived a completely secular life for, you know, maybe 18 years. So when you, where did you go to college and what were you studying? You mentioned the part that Judaism kind of fell by the wayside at that point, but what were you looking to study and where did you go to school? Well, undergrad was a commuter school in Chicago, Northeastern Illinois University. And then I, I went on to graduate school at Michigan State University in uh, employment relations. And I ended up getting a PhD in employment relations from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Okay. And what were you looking to do with the degree? Become a professor, teach at a college. Okay, so you had the plan, and I, we know from your bio that that ended up working out. It did. Uh, so what, what's going on with your family back at home, though? So you mentioned when you're going home, there is some of this exposure to Judaism, even though you're not living that way. So what are those times like when you do go back home? Well, that's when my youngest brother comes into the picture. So my uh, youngest brother, Alan, who's six years younger than I am, when it comes time for him to go to high school, my parents are very leery of the public high school in the neighborhood because it had a reputation as being kind of a drug haven. So the alternative was to send him to a private school. And as I recall, some friends of his had an older brother who went to Ida Crown Jewish Academy in Chicago. And so they ended up sending him there because they figured it would be a better environment. And he was interested. He was willing to go. So he gets there, and pretty much a month later, he comes home and says, if you don't make the house kosher and put up mezuzot, I'm moving out. You know? <laughs> this is at the age of 13. Now, I'm, all, I'm away at college when this is going on, and I come home for spring break or whatever it was, and we have two sets of dishes, and we have mezuzot on all the doors, and I'm thinking, what's going on here? So he had sort of become Bali Tshuva, and he was very serious about it. He was really very, very serious about it. He subsequently went to Yeshiva University and made Aliyah in 1986. So I now have my younger brother who is from. I'm completely secular. I'm also involved in Eastern mysticism. I had learned Transcendental Meditation, which was sort of a big deal in the 70s. So there was quite a, a gulf between us. And he, from a, from a Torah point of view, felt it was his obligation to rebuke my lack of practice. You know, he was young and he really took it seriously. And his older brother was not practicing the mitzvot. And so he wanted me to know that this was not kosher. And it created some tension between us for quite a while. Your brother has really the same background in Judaism as you up till the age of 12 or 13. And then he's just thrown into this school where basically all the kids have been in the yeshiva system, more or less since preschool or kindergarten. And he's just getting turned on by what he's surrounded by and the environment that he's in? Correct. He came under the influence of a rabbi who took an interest in him. And I think... That was a big influence on him. And, and he subsequently became involved in, uh, you know, modern Orthodox youth groups 
And he really took it on. He really took it on in a very serious way. I didn't understand or appreciate it at the time. Are your parents happy that he's making this change? Are they doing this just because they don't want to fracture the relationship with him? Or are they getting into Orthodox Judaism themselves? Certainly they were familiar with all of this, having grown up with it. And I think that they wanted to accommodate him. And I don't think they found it objectionable. I don't know that they embraced it so strongly themselves. So they weren't living a Jewish observance life, but they were kind of setting up the house, at least that it had the infrastructure for what he needed at that stage of his life? I would say that would be an accurate description. Okay. The other part that's so interesting to me is I interview so many people where they become religious, the family is not, and the tension is that they're coming home to the house and saying it's not set up for what I need. But your story is in reverse, that the family's becoming someone who has this observant household, and you're the secular one. So it's a, it's kind of an interesting twist in the typical storyline. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say that not having the breadth of exposure to these experiences that you do, you know, I wouldn't necessarily describe my experience as atypical. It was just my experience. For sure. And then you also just introduced the Eastern mysticism, which I referenced in the intro. So how did you get involved in that? Like, what were you searching for that you were looking for there? You know, I had always been kind of a spiritual seeker. And conservative Judaism was not a place where you found spiritual depth. And if it was there, I certainly didn't look for it. So uh, when I went away to college, transcendental meditation was quite popular. And there were posters all over for this simple, natural, effortless meditation technique. And it was supposedly, you know, it had physiological benefits. And so I signed up for the course and I took it and I liked it. And I became more deeply involved. Um, you know, I ended up going to Europe and studying uh, with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. And it, it filled a place at the time, a spiritual yearning that I had. And it also provided a lot of social benefits because, you know, I made friends with all the other people who had this same path. So it, it met a lot of my needs. Now, I, I want to sort of, I want to back up a minute because... There's a sort of a funny story during this kind of interim period where I'm secular and he's from. And that was whenever I would come home to visit, if we went out to eat, it had to be at a kosher restaurant. And at that time in the 1970s, 1980s, the kosher restaurants were terrible in Chicago. They were just terrible. And it was just such a an unpleasant experience because I had been going out to all these trafe restaurants and they were delicious, right? And now I'm going to these kosher restaurants and they were terrible. And I would always complain. And so one year the family went to a wedding in New York and my brother Alan said, I'm going to take you to a really good kosher restaurant. So we went to this kosher restaurant called Moshe Peking, which was sort of a high-end Chinese restaurant in the New York area. Very fancy place you know, very high prices. And so he looks at me afterward and he says, how was it? I said, Alan, I said, this was the best kosher food I've ever had. And then I went back to Madison, Wisconsin, and my friend said, how was it? And I said, that was the worst Chinese food I've ever had. <laughs> so, you know, those years were kind of, I look back at them sort of half fondly and half sort of like with embarrassment because I just had so little appreciation of his devotion and commitment to Judaism. And 
uh, I'm kind of sorry I didn't get on the train earlier, but I, I just was on my own journey. So you said you then end up going to Israel because he's getting married to somebody who lives there? Right. So he, he met Aliyah in 1986. He got married in uh, 1989. So of course, I'm going to go to the wedding. It was my first trip to Israel. And I landed on a Thursday. The wedding was on a Sunday. I landed the previous Thursday morning. And he picked me up at the airport. And he, he said, the wedding is Sunday. And this is pretty much the only time we're going to have together. So what would you like to do? And I said, take me to the Wailing Wall. You know, that's, that's the way the tour, a tourist would like talk about it, right? Take me to the Wailing Wall. And I was not going as a spiritual seeker. I was going as a tourist because I had heard about this place and you put the note in the wall and I thought I'd put a note in the wall and it was like, okay, you know. So that was sort of my desire when I, when I landed. So we went right from the airport to the hotel and that changed my life. Because when I got there, I was utterly overwhelmed by something I still can't understand or describe. I mean, the best way for me to talk about it is to sort of describe it as vibrating infinity. It was just overwhelmingly powerful. I was, and it was completely unexpected. Uh, you know, I was not anticipating anything like that. So I asked them, I said, okay, so what's the history of this place? Because I didn't even know. You know, I didn't even know. He said, well, when the temple was destroyed, the, you know, it's said that the Shekhinah, the divine presence, entered this wall. It, it just shook me because here I'd been kind of pursuing this Eastern path, and yet I had this incredibly powerful spiritual experience in a Jewish site. And so I started questioning what I had been doing, and it slowly all started to unravel. Uh, I would sit down to do this Eastern meditation and the Shema would come to me. And so it took a few years. And then I think it was like New Year's of 1983. I just said, I cannot do this Eastern stuff anymore. I have to completely leave it behind. It's not right. And I never looked back. Wait, then, is it 1983? Because you said you went, the wedding was 89. Okay, so 93. I'm assuming this happened 93. afterwards. 93. I got, I got it. I got it. I'm off by a decade. So it was 93. Okay. It was 93. So well, let me just ask you one question. At the Kotel, does your brother see that it's having this like heavy impact on you? Because here's someone who's been kind of whispering in your ear all these years, like, this is the way you should be living. I'm onto something here. Does he witness this reaction you're having? And, and does he have something to share about that? Well, I mean, he's... You know, he had grown and matured, and so he wasn't so in my face anymore, and as he was when he was younger. And so he said, I'm going to have you talk to a rabbi about this. So he found a, a, a Rosh Yeshiva who had some knowledge of Eastern religion, and I met with him, and I talked with him about it. And he basically said, what you've been doing is a legitimate spiritual path, but not for someone with a Jewish neshama. You have a Jewish neshama, you need to be following a Jewish path. And, you know, I mean, it really shook me. It shook me because I had invested a lot in what I had been doing. And to sort of then realize that maybe I shouldn't be doing it anymore was, you know, quite a shock and very difficult for me to grapple with. I mean, it, I was in a real period of real spiritual struggle for several years until I left it all behind and said, okay. I'm now Jewish, right? But now what does that mean? Because the, the Jewish I knew was USY, 
and and this lousy Hebrew school. And so then it was, okay, well, I've got to sort of explore. I have to learn. I have to find out what being Jewish means to me. Now that I'm re-embracing it, you know, what does that mean? So, you know, I ended up fortunately living in Boston. There were just enormous number of resources, people to study with, classes to take. By this time, I was a college professor teaching at Bentley University. And I actually arranged my teaching schedule so that I could sit in on classes at Brandeis with Rabbi Arthur Green, who at the time was teaching at Brandeis. I studied with uh, Rabbi Nehemia Polin at Hebrew College, who's just a, a wonderful human being and a wonderful teacher. Uh, I studied with Rabbi Meir Sender, who had got his PhD at Harvard in medieval Jewish thought. So I found these wonderful, wonderful teachers to study with. And I went very deep, but it was all on the level of learning. It was not on the level of doing mitzvot. Yeah, that's kind of a common story that you see people are learning, but then there's a leap from learning to adopting Correct. what you're learning. Correct. So you're kind of in the curious phase right now saying, I want to learn in a whole different way from how I grew up with Judaism. So you're taking all these classes. Are you now starting to get questions from the people you're studying with? Like, hey, did you ever think about adopting some of the things we're talking about? These were not teachers who were kiruv oriented. They were just interested in teaching. And then you did what you did with it. So there was, you know, uh, there was a, a period of time where I was exploring, learning. And then uh, my mother passed away in 1997. And I decided that I would say Kaddish every day. And at this point, literally the only mitzvah I was doing was lighting Shabbos candles, which is ironic because I'm a guy, right? <laughs> you know, I had a pair of tefillin. I put them on once in a while. And, and when my mother passed away in Chicago, by the way, it was my first exposure to an Orthodox shiva too. And so that was just a, a very overwhelming experience with everyone coming over and actually davening in my living room, in my father's living room and all that. I mean, that was all new to me. I, I, was, I had never been exposed to that before. How did you even know how to daven? Were you doing it transliterated or you knew how to read Hebrew? Well, I mean, I knew enough Hebrew that, you know, I could say Kaddish, but I was, you know, I was davening it using the English translation. The local rabbi showed me where the Kaddishes came in. I stumbled on Kaddish the Rabbanon for a while. Everybody, <laughs> everybody does for the, you know, when they're new at this, you know. So there was that, you know, there was that week of Shiva in Chicago, which I, you know, observed. And then I went back to, to Boston and, and I kind of sort of tried to figure out, okay, where am I going to say Kaddish? So I went to one modern, I, and I wanted to go to a modern Orthodox synagogue because my parents had belonged to one. And I knew there would always be a minion, you know, so I went to one modern Orthodox synagogue and for a couple of weeks and everybody ignored me. Nobody said hello. Nobody said, who are you? Nobody asked me how I was. And I, I you know, this is not for me. I went to another synagogue and it just, that wasn't for me at all. I went to a third synagogue and it was pretty boring. It was just very rote. And then I remembered there was another Orthodox synagogue in Newton, Massachusetts. And I thought, I'll try that one, you know? So I go in and the davening's down in the basement and I go down there and 
I say Kaddish. And the guy comes up to me afterwards and says, did we go too fast for you? And I said, this is the place. <laughs> so that was 1997, Congregation Shari Tefillah. I'm still a member. I've been there ever since. So when I first started coming, I basically said, I'm not from, I'm not trying to be from, I want a place to say Kaddish. But of course, you know, everybody was warm and friendly. They started inviting me for meals. The rabbi took an interest in me. I was driving there on Shabbat and sort of parking four blocks away and hoping nobody would see me. And then after a while, I decided I really don't want to do that. So I ended up moving near the synagogue so I could walk on Shabbos. I wasn't keeping kosher at that point in time, but then no one would come to me for meals. And so eventually I decided to keep kosher. So initially it was kind of more of a desire to fit in to this new experience, this new place. But, you know, once you do it on the outside, then it starts to mean something on the inside. And what I came to experience, which was really fascinating, was that when I kept Shabbat and I made choices to keep Shabbat, something good always came out of it. So one story in particular that, that I like to tell. A year or two after joining Congregation Shari Tefillah, I arranged to go visit my father in Chicago, and the flight was on a, was on a Friday early afternoon. And, you know, I had calculated it so that I would get to Chicago maybe three hours before candle lighting, and, and there wouldn't be a problem. So I get on the plane, pulls away from the gate, then the captain makes an announcement. There are weather difficulties, and we're restricted to one runway, and there are something like 42 planes ahead of us. Uh-oh. And so I'm thinking, uh-oh, this is not good. So I uh, motioned over to the flight attendant, and I said, look, I'm a, I'm a Shabbat observant Jew, and... If we continue on this sort of timetable, I'm going to land in Chicago after the Sabbath begins, and I'm not going to be able to take a taxi home, and I'm not going to have any food, and I'm not going to be able to spend any money to buy food, even if there was kosher food at the airport, which there wasn't, right? So if we don't take off soon, I, I, I'm going to need to go back to the gate. So she gets this look on her face like, hmm... And she goes to the back and she gets on the intercom with the pilot. And a couple minutes later, the pilot announces to the entire plane, we've been bumped up to number one for takeoff, buckle your seatbelts. <laughs> so, so by being Shabbat observant and really being true to that, you know, I got to Chicago in time. Wait, but did you ever find out the inner workings of how that happened? Like, was the pilot Jewish? Like, why were they interested in making this happen for you? I, I don't think they were interested in making it happen for me. I don't think anybody wanted to sit on that runway, and they had an excuse. I was their excuse, but it was just <laughs> fine, you know? It was just fine with me. I just wouldn't right? think that would work. I would think every pilot is saying, oh, one of my passengers has a reason they need to get there sooner. Can you bump us up? And air traffic control is saying, yeah, everybody wants to be bumped up. Wait your turn. I really don't know what the backstory is. I'm just telling you what happened, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so when I made a choice to keep Shabbat, it was reinforced in these wonderful ways that really made me feel like, yeah, this is definitely the right choice. This is definitely the life I want to live. 
So at this point, would you describe yourself as fully observant? Are you checking all the boxes, keeping Shabbos, eating kosher, going in the shul on Shabbos? Are you doing all those things at this point? Uh, yes, and also going to Shacharit every morning. So then there's one ingredient missing from your story. I haven't heard you say anything about marriage, so take me inside that piece of the story. So during my uh, secular phase, I had relationships with women who weren't Jewish. And when my mother died and I started coming to an Orthodox synagogue, that all shifted. I dated various women, and, and, but nothing really worked until 2001. Someone from my synagogue invited me for lunch on Shemini Yetzirah, which is, of course, a holiday I'd never heard of until I started going to an Orthodox synagogue. And I showed up for lunch. And she said, by the way, a friend of ours is coming over. We're going to kind of introduce you. And I'm, I'm thinking like, what? I mean, <laughs> like you're, fix, you're fixing me up and like you don't give me any advance warning? It's like, really? I didn't say that. I'm, I'm thinking that to myself. And so my future wife walks in and uh, we hit it off instantaneously. She was divorced with three teenagers. So... It was a big package. I was in my late 40s, still a bachelor. And took me a while to decide if I was willing to take this on. It was a lot to take on. And I decided to take it on, and I'm just so glad I did, and I'm really blessed. You know, I have a wonderful wife and three wonderful stepchildren. One of them made Aliyah right out of high school. Uh, one of them is in Israel now. Their father is an Israeli. So they're fluent in Hebrew and Israeli citizens. And uh, it was a wonderful blessing to meet her and to have them come into my life. And comparing her background to yours, was she raised secular like you or she came from a religious family? She came from a more religious family. Okay. So the, the three kids you were taking on had been like from the beginning raised in an observant way. I would say in a very Jewish way, not necessarily in an Orthodox way. They all went to day school. They had very strong Jewish backgrounds. Were they interested in hearing about your background and understanding, okay, you're observant now, but what was your life like before we met you? Did you have conversations with them about that? They were teenagers. They weren't interested <laughs> in that. I mean, I've had that conversation with them as adults because they're now in their 30s. But when I married into the family, she and I were on the same page, and they did what they did because they're teenagers. I mean, <laughs> they're going to do what they're going to do. Right. Okay, so now going back to the professional side, you've been a teacher for a long time, but I had mentioned in the intro about being involved with nonprofits. So is there a point in the story where you switch from teaching to the nonprofit sector? I was teaching at a business school initially, and then in 2000, I, I came to Brandeis as a researcher in the sort of the Jewish nonprofit world. I was with the Cohn Center for Modern Jewish Studies for eight years. And then a position opened up in the Hornstein Jewish Professional Leadership Program. And so I was a faculty member there for 13 years. And, uh, and my specialty was studying Jewish nonprofits. So I was very involved with uh, the Jewish nonprofit sector as a teacher, as a consultant, as a researcher. And this, just recently, my position at Brandeis was eliminated in a department reorganization. And so I'm now 
kind of a freelance consultant, and I'm trying to figure out what's next. Okay, so if someone was listening to this saying, oh, this is a guy I could see hiring, what are two or three things that you could offer to someone? Um, I'm fun to work with. Mm-hmm. We're turning <laughs> this into an interview all of a sudden. Uh, sure. <laughs> I have a lot of keen insights into the way organizations are run because my doctorate's in management. And I'm a really I'm an excellent teacher and mentor. I mean, I'm still in touch with many alumni of the Hornstein program. Um, so let's go back just for a moment to... Someone like you is now living a fully observant life. What's your perspective on that lifestyle now versus maybe how you would have perceived it when you were completely secular? How did your opinion about the lifestyle change over time? Well, I think when you look at it from the outside, you see all the things you can't do. You can't eat in non-kosher restaurants. You can't drive or watch TV or use your computer on Shabbat. Uh, There's all these holidays that you never heard of that you're suddenly observing and you know, also have restrictions. And, uh, you know, looking at it from the outside, it's sort of like, well, why would I want to do that? Right. But, you know, when you do it, it's delightful. And you don't know how delightful it is until you do it. And it's much better than whatever you gave up. And now there's good kosher restaurants. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's sort of there's an interesting parallel. And this is sort of going back a little ways. But I always had a weight problem. Uh, you know, I got to the point where I was pushing 300 pounds. And when I met my wife and we started dating, you know, she was very candid. She said, you have a problem with food and you need to do something about it. And so I did. And I ended up losing 110 pounds and I've kept that off. But initially, the thought of giving up all of my favorite foods Mm -hmm. was like, how can I give up pizza? How can I give up chocolate cake? How can I give up ice cream? Right? I mean, let's unthinkable. But if I was going to lose 110 pounds, I needed to do something seriously different in the way that I ate. And so, you know, I adopted a food plan where I gave up everything made from flour and sugar. And I gave up second helpings and I gave up snacks between meals. And I ended up taking out a very strict, disciplined way of eating, and which I still follow. What I have is so much better now. My ability to take on a disciplined way of eating came about after I took on keeping kosher. So once I took on the discipline of keeping kosher, I, it was just another step to take on the discipline of eating in a, in a more uh, healthy way. What did I give up for Shabbat? You know, some secular pleasures for a much deeper spiritual, rich experience on a weekly basis. And what did I give up, uh, you know, when I gave up certain foods, I got much better health and much better clarity of mind. And, and I stopped being obsessed with food. So when you think about having to give something up that you're very attached to, you just don't know what it's like on the other side until you give it up and do it. And then on the other side, it's like, hey, this is so much better. I think you also had somebody special come into your life who was like just the right person to deliver this health message to you at just the right time. And you're thinking, if this relationship is going to work and if I'm going to be around for a long time, I'm going to listen to this advice I'm being given. Yeah. Well, she gets a lot of credit. Yes. So what are you hoping for from a Jewish perspective? What are you focused on over the next few years as you continue to grow? That is such a good question. And I don't know that I don't know that I have such a glib answer to that. One always wants to learn more. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the advantages of not having my position of Brandeis anymore is that I have more free time. So I'm taking classes online. 
the same rabbi, Rabbi Mayer Sender, that I studied with here in Boston, you know, 25 years ago, made Aliyah and moved to Efrat and now offers classes online and I take classes with him. So uh, I think really just to deepen my learning, continue my learning. And uh, it's all about getting closer to Hashem. I mean, it's, it's not about checking all the boxes and doing all the things. It's all about being closer to Hashem and becoming observant has brought me much closer to Hashem. And I want to continue to get closer. Beautifully said. And we're now up to our lightning round. We'd like to close with some quick questions. So are you ready? All right. All right. So if you were still a professor today, what's a class related to Judaism that you'd love to be offering the students? Uh, practical Kabbalah. <laughs> what's the first thing on the, on the syllabus? Meditation. Jewish meditation. Uh, so as someone who's now going to be doing consulting for Jewish nonprofits, what do you see as the biggest challenge for them to succeed in today's environment? Apathy. Apathy among many Jews about their Jewish identity. And for someone who's thinking about becoming observant, who is inspired by your story, what's a book you'd recommend that they pick up? Anything by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, because it's so accessible and it's so intelligent and articulate and it's so real world. And then you mentioned over the course of the interview when you were becoming observant and taking on some of these things, what would you say was the hardest thing you took on as you checked off these steps of becoming observant? Getting up early in the morning to go to Shachrit. <laughs> what, what time was the minion? Uh, six, 6.30. You needed to be in a community that had multiple minyanim. Uh, well, we don't have that. So. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, last question about Shabbos. If somebody comes to your house for a Shabbos meal, what's the signature dish they can expect to have? Ooh, that's a great question. Uh, there are so many. Actually, I make a really nice salad. Yeah, what's in it? Everything. <laughs> everything? <laughs> yes, and, and I use a mandolin slicer, so everything is very thinly sliced. So uh, it takes me about 45 minutes to make it. Very nice. I can't wait for the invitation. Mark, you are officially out of the lightning round, and I want to thank you for joining me on Saturday to Shabbos. This was such a pleasure. I enjoyed it very much. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our executive producer is Rabbi David Pardo. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit taklismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at taklismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.